singularity. We're sitting here with Dr. Max Moore, who is not only the CEO of the Alcor Foundation, but also the strategic philosopher who put the ism in transhumanism. Thanks for having us over, Max. You're very welcome. Max, you gave us a fantastic video tour of your facilities, but let me ask you about the cost of membership of Alcor. Yeah, as you've seen, there's quite a few parts to this whole process. We send people out across the country, maybe wait around, uh, use a lot of equipment, a lot of supplies, medications, uh, there's transportation, there's perfusates, there's surgeons, and long-term storage. So you think, my goodness, that must cost a tremendous amount of money. Now, compared to open-heart surgery, it's actually, I think, a pretty good deal. Uh, there's really two expenses. One is the membership dues, which just keep the organization functioning. Uh, those are currently $620 per year for the first family member. And after that, it's 50% discount for others. Um, also, for students and long-term members, we offer discounts too. Oh, wow. Uh, but then the main cost really is the actual cryopreservation fee itself, which allows us to do that whole procedure and keep you cryopreserved for decades. Mm-hmm. That currently is a minimum of $200,000 for a whole body patient or $80,000 for a neuro patient. Mm-hmm. Now, some of that pays for the procedure itself, and uh, some portion of that money goes into the patient care trust fund, and we use the interest from that to pay for perpetual upkeep. Now, you might think, I don't have $80,000 or $200,000 sitting around, mm-hmm. but nor did I when I signed up. I, I signed up as a, a student in England, quite poor. <laughs> uh, almost everybody, the vast majority of our members, pay through life insurance. Uh, they just make alcohol the beneficiary, and you just pay the you know, standard monthly fee for life insurance. Mm-hmm. So for the vast majority of people, it's actually quite affordable. If you can afford to go out to Starbucks every couple of days for a, a cup of their coffee, you can afford cryonics. Mm-hmm. So let me get this straight. If you're a family of, say, a husband and a wife, the wife or the second person who signs up for your services will get a 50% discount? That's right, and the children too. And the children Mm -hmm. too. And what about the pets and how do they fit in the whole picture? We do cryopreserve pets, but only for members. We don't accept pets uh, for non-members. The reasoning Mm -hmm. is that when it becomes possible, or if it becomes possible to repair and revive a cat or a dog in the future, mm-hmm. you want them to come back to the family they know, to be, be part of that family. So mm-hmm. we don't just take pets unless the humans intend to go with them. And we charge that basically at cost. That's kind of a benefit to the members. So it depends on, on the volume. You know, for a large dog, that's going to be fairly expensive. If you just cryopreserve the dog's brain uh, or a small, small animal, then it's a lot less expensive. Does it matter what kind of animal it is? Is it is there any kind of animals that you wouldn't try cryopreserving? Well, I don't know. We've never been asked to cryopreserve a whole hippopotamus. That would be <laughs> pretty challenging. I think very expensive. So, you know, that would probably be quite a lot of money. But usually it's cats and dogs. I think reptiles. We might, we people might, have reptile pets. Yeah, you know, we have a couple of other more odd ones, maybe a reptile. I'm not sure if we have a monkey or not. But, you know, the vast majority of cats and dogs. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And do they stay in the same containers that the neuro or full body preservation patients use? Right now, since we only have 117 patients total and a limited number of containers, we have to put them wherever they'll fit best and we want to minimize the cost. Mm -hmm. So especially with a a cat brain, if you're just preserving a cat brain, that's pretty small. So we can fit that into little spaces that are left over Mm -hmm. from human patients. Mm -hmm. So in the long term, I imagine they'll be completely separated. But right now for economies of scale, to keep costs down, We fit them in where we can most effectively. Mm -hmm. So if I want to be cryopreserved and I have a pet, I may have that kind of emotional attachment that I want to be preserved together with them. So you can put us together. That's possible. Uh, It really will depend on 
what the time gap is and other patients we might have put in in the meantime. So mm-hmm. you may not better guarantee that you'll be you know, placed with an animal. Although, again, if it's something like a cat or you know, a small dog brain that would probably fit into the same space, then that's mm-hmm. probably quite feasible. Let me give you a couple of questions that were submitted by members of my audience. And the first one comes from North Carolina. Uh, somebody there is considering your services very seriously to the point of uh, wondering whether it's best for them to move in Arizona or if there's any way for them to continue living in North Carolina while becoming a a long-distance member. And is there any downsides or upsides for people who are on the East or the West Coast? That's a good question because if you understand anything about cryonics, you have to understand that it's very important to minimize the delay after clinical death, we want to start working on you immediately, start calling you, administering mm-hmm. uh, you know, CPR, restarting circulation. So obviously that's more likely if you're nearby Alcor. However, most members, you know, the vast majority of our members are not local. They're all over the country and in fact in other countries. So what we do, um, we send out a team or we, have, we partner with an organization currently which uh, operates in most of the other states in the country. So if we have some advance warning that you're critically ill, they will go out there, they'll send out perfusionists and nurses and EMTs, and they'll wait until clinical death has been declared. And these people are based in all different states. They have people in Florida and California, various other states. So essentially, they're on a contract basis and can be called in depending on where the patient's going down, so they get to the pretty quickly. So it doesn't really matter where in the country you are. However, I would say yes, if you can move to Scottsdale area, especially when you know you're critically ill, that's a very good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, it minimizes shipping delays. I mean, we still have to put someone on an airplane. That's going to take several hours to get here. Uh, there could be other delays. There could be bureaucratic problems in various states where you have to have the paperwork done. So it really does help to come to Scottsdale if you know you're in the last six months. You can move into hospice, and then you're right nearby, and we can probably get you from the hospice to here in something like half an hour. So that really minimizes delays. Yeah, I think uh, during the tour, the best... Uh one of the impressive things was that the, your best time was about 33 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that was pretty... That's including administering all the medications, starting all the cooling, yeah. and the transport itself. So that's very fast. In fact, then we have to wait when we get here because we have to get the temperature down before we start surgery. So it's I actually see. faster than we need to be. And what about for us Canadians, for example? Me and my wife, we're also considering your services. And we're in Toronto, Canada. Do you happen to have... Uh, I know there's a number of members uh, or... Uh, uh, people who are um, very much interested in your services there in our area, what do you propose for us? Yeah, we have quite a few members in Canada. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think it's the second or large, third largest country in terms of membership. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canada is relatively easy. Um, we're currently positioning some equipment over the border just because it's a little bit uncertain about customs. If we take over some of our, our devices that we use, mm-hmm. um, you know, Lucas 2 device, which does the pumps the chest and uh, various medita- uh, medications, sometimes border has been a problem, sometimes not. So if we can position them on that side of the border, we can then p- pick them up and then coming back is a lot easier. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, we've done a number of cases in Canada and that shouldn't be a problem. But we're currently working on accelerating that process, being able to minimize any delays. I received also another request from uh, an interesting person, interested person from Indonesia. And he was asking me, what about Southeast Asia or Indonesia in my case? I am interested and I want to sign up, but I feel like I'm in the other end of the world. What do those people do? Well, there's no doubt that the challenges increase the further away you are. And if you're outside this continent, 
uh, especially in a non-English speaking country, it's more challenging. Mm-hmm. We have quite a few members in England uh, because you know, it's the English language and there's a lot of commonalities. That's fairly easy to deal with. Uh, we've been working on improving our response there by having some local capabilities. But yes, when you start talking about uh, further Eastern Europe or, or in uh, Asia, that gets more difficult. We have a member actually in Thailand who we're working with right now who actually has the resources to have us do some training, bring his doctor over here to learn a bit about what we do. And he's very interested in minimizing any problems there. Uh, we have very few members in Asia currently, but we would like to be able to expand there. So that probably would mean developing more local response capabilities where we'd have medics, um, you know, whatever the qualifications are in that country, want people who are well qualified to be thoroughly trained medics, paramedics, uh, nurses, perfusionists. And ideally what we want to do in a remote country is because we want to minimize the, um, essentially the deterioration of the patient. We want to not ship them on water ice, which is just about you know, the, point of, the freezing point of water. Mm-hmm. We want to get them further down to the driest temperature. Now, you can get driest fairly easily in many locations. And that's pretty cold. That's about minus 79 degrees C. Mm-hmm. That's a lot warmer than liquid nitrogen, but it's a lot colder than regular ice. And at that temperature, we have a couple of weeks to get you over here without there being any kind of problem. So that's currently the plan in Europe, and that's what we'd aim to do in Asia. But we don't really have a whole lot of demand from that area so far. Can you give us more specific country associations? In, in, because you mentioned Europe in general, but I know, for example, from my contingent of audience, uh, in the United Kingdom is the second largest uh, viewership of Singularity Weblog after the United States. So what if you're in the UK? And I know that you started perhaps the very first uh, uh, cryo organization, if I'm correct, in, in England back in... Yes, that's right. Back in uh, 1986... Yeah, so what, what about for UK citizens? Well, again, in the past, we have been able to do our procedures and get them over here, but traditionally we've shipped them, again, on water ice, which is very undesirable. So we're right now in the final stages of uh, implementing a new procedure where, again, what we do is we administer the medications, we do the cooling, but we take them down to driest temperature, and then we ship them over here. So the idea is we will store, probably in London to start with, because we have um, an undertaker there who we've worked with a couple of times in the past and is quite sympathetic. And uh, They have experience working with transporting patients from all around the world. Uh, they will actually store up a fusate in the country, so we won't have to try and rush it over there at the last moment. They'll keep it there in their fridge, and then we'll take it to wherever the patient is. We'll do the standard washout, remove the blood and body fluids as much as possible, which is really a critical part of the procedure to minimize damage. Mm-hmm. Then we can take them down to driest temperature without any ice crystal formation or, or by minimizing it. Then we don't have to worry so much about the shipping time. If it takes a few days, even a week, that's okay at that temperature. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're pretty far along um, in England and Western Europe and be able to offer that level of quality. Let me ask you to consider or to discuss and elaborate on an alternative proposal which uh, allegedly would alleviate the concerns with storage and transportation, and that's the path as proposed by Ken Hayworth for chemical brain preservation. <laughs> would, uh, what do you think of that process? And if properly implemented, wouldn't that resolve many of the transportation issues, especially having to go to minus 70-some degrees Celsius, etc., etc.? Well, chemical preservation is an interesting proposal, and it's something I'm keeping an eye on quite closely because there's no reason why we couldn't offer that option uh, if it seemed feasible. Now, right now, I don't think it is. I don't think it's going to give you a good preservation. Uh, but if it does, you're still going to require teams of people to go out to wherever you are, whatever state you're in, um, do the process, bring you back, maintain you over the long term. All of that requires the kind of structure that we already have set up. So there's no reason for us not to do it so long as it seems feasible. However, 
right now, all you can point to really are very thin slices of tissue that have been chemically preserved. Yeah. Preserving a whole brain, even a small brain, is very difficult. Preserving a whole human brain is radically difficult. The and problem is you, you can't perfuse it effectively. All you can do is infuse it, which basically means you're putting the, the brain in you know, a bunch of these chemicals and waiting for it to soak in. But waiting for it will take a long time. It takes a long time to perfuse all the way mm -hmm. into the brain. In the meantime, it's deteriorating. So there is no current known method for actually uh, preserving chemically a whole and brain. And Ken Hayworth uh, uh, admitted openly uh, so during my interview. However, uh, going at the m m micro scale at simple slices, his claim was that the current chemical brain preservation techniques that we, are, we, we know how to use for the last several decades allegedly are proven to have the least amount of damage at that smaller scale. Now, it doesn't scale to the size of the brain, but if you take a certain specific issue and compare it to, for example, cryopreserved one, according to him, the damage is much, much smaller. Is that? I'm not sure that's the case. I mean, it depends on what he's comparing it to. You can't really talk he about... He was talking about electromicroscopy right. and how you can compare the two results. No, I mean, you can give an electromicroscopy. It depends on what he's comparing. If he's comparing a very thin slice of neural tissue that's been chemically preserved to some random cryopreserved brain tissue, that may not be the right comparison. It depends on which sample he's looking at. Patients are in different kinds of conditions. Some of our patients, we can't perfuse the brain at all mm -hmm. because their vascular system is badly compromised and we can't get the perfusate in there. Mm -hmm. In other cases, we do a really good job at it. Uh, we know this fairly recently from doing CT scans of neuropatients. We can see real differences between them depending on the condition. Mm -hmm. So I don't know which one Ken's looking at. I don't know how good a cryopreservation he's looking at. Uh, what I've seen of our electron microscope studies is under good conditions, we're doing a pretty good job of preserving the brain tissue. You're the synapses are intact. The vitrification process. Yeah, yeah. The, mm -hmm. uh, the membranes are intact, the synapses seem to be in the right places. So I think we're doing a pretty good job with that. Mm -hmm. Let me stop you there for a second, if you wouldn't mind. Because just yesterday, I interviewed uh, Dr. Stuart Hameroff at the University of Arizona Medical Center. And his take on the whole cryopreservation process that unless you are able to somehow preserve what he calls the microtubules in the neurons, in his words, you guys are wasting your time because consciousness, according to him, is stored or originates or arises in those microtubules. And according to him, uh, the microtubules get destroyed in the process. And then he was even speaking about how there may be several different paths and that if you do this, the membranes go out, or if you do that, something else goes out. But whatever you do it with the current knowledge, we can't preserve the microtubules, according to him. Oh. Well, I don't know about the condition of the microtubules. I don't know of any studies that have looked at that um, under good cryopreservation conditions. And let me say, his opinion is highly controversial in the field, and he admitted openly that the vast majority of both neuroscientists and artificial yeah. intelligence people... Uh, to say disagree with him is an understatement. Right. Yeah, I was going to say that, uh, okay, so we don't know how well microtubules are preserved, but as you say, his position is very much a minority position. Most people don't think that consciousness or memory or personality are encoded in the microtubules. The, by far, the mainstream position, the one that seems most plausible, is that it's the connectome that primarily matters. It's how the neurons connect up to each one, to mm -hmm. one another, um, the synapses, the weightings of the neurons. Mm -hmm. And that thing, we, that we do know is well-preserved in a good con a good cryopreservation at least. Mm -hmm. That is pretty well preserved. So that seems very likely to be where memories are stored. Uh, I don't really see any good reason to think it's stored in the microtubules. But I'd be very interested in actually looking at what he's looked at and seeing uh, you know, what evidence is there that yes or no they are uh, preserved through this process. 
So we should perhaps check out my interview when it comes out on YouTube. But in the meantime, uh, let me ask you this, which was another point that came during my conversation with Ken Hayworth. He uh, is, I think, one of the people who have organized a, a prize, and I don't remember if it was a twenty or a $30,000 prize, for the best chemical preservation of a mouse, mouse brain. And there's, I think, uh, one or two teams or, or three teams competing for that prize. Wouldn't it make sense if uh, Alcor came up with some kind of an X-Prize type of a competition for the best cryopreservation uh, of a brain, be it animal or human, which would sort of create incentives for people to do further research and push forward the progress in, in, in our knowledge in, in cryopreservation? Yeah, that's a good question. I think prizes can be very effective. Now, the X Prize is not the first of its kind. You can go back in history and look at prizes for airline flight, for instance. Yeah. Um, it's a very, very powerful incentive, and people will spend far more money than Absolutely. the prize is worth to, to win the prize. So I think it's a very good mechanism. Uh, Ken's own pra uh, the, the Brain Technology Preservation Prize, I, I believe it's called, is actually not just for chemical preservation. It's open to whatever method works best. And I think the two main teams, one is chemical preservation, one is actually cryopreservation. Uh, and the, they're competing to see who can do the best according to their criteria. Now, as to how could we create a separate Cryonics X Prize? Well, there's actually been a fair bit of discussion of that. It turns out to be quite difficult to construct one. You know, with an X Prize, you can specify it pretty clearly. You can say you have to reach the uh, altitude, yeah, 90 miles or whatever yeah. altitude you want to specify, and you have to sustain that. You have to do it twice within two days. Yeah. You can be very exact about that. But what do you specify for the cryonics prize? It has to be sufficiently ambitious that it will really stimulate people that if you could do that, it would be like, wow, if you can do that, maybe this stuff really can work. So do you want to bring back a dog? That's tremendously difficult. That's the problem. It's not going to happen in 10 years. But We're can we not measure that. the icicles forming and, and the size, I don't know, with electron microscopy or something like that and the potential damage of the tissue and perhaps... Say, okay, right now we're seeing damage at, I don't know, the scale of, for example, 30 or 50 nanometers. And let's say we go down whoever takes the process to 10 nanometers as perfect to the original as possible. It is the, the, the team that wins the prize. I'm just improvising here, but doesn't that make sense? We measure the damage? Yeah, it's very hard to do because it's going to vary in different parts of the brain. Do you go on average size? Do you go damage, where is it located? Are you damaging the cell membranes or the soma and the neuron? Mm -hmm. it's very, it becomes very hard to specify. Do you just improve that 15%? You know, Does that make enough of a difference? Is that going to excite people? Probably not. It's, it's really hard to have a clear line. Mm -hmm. There's some discussion of having a two-part prize where you'd have a fairly, or relatively easy, not easy, but relatively easy component, then one that's a lot more ambitious. The more ambitious one would be to revive a mammal, for instance, mm -hmm. which we're nowhere near doing. That's going to probably take a long time because yeah. there's tremendous amounts of damage to reverse. But anything much short of that probably isn't going to make a big difference in terms of people's perception. Because we can already cryopreserve dozens of different tissue types. We can yeah. preserve organs and sperm and eggs. Absolutely. And all of those have been reversed. But that doesn't make people think cryonics will clearly work. Mm -hmm. But doing a whole organism is, is a big step. We can't really even do a single organ reliably. Uh, a, a kidney has been cryopreserved and rewarmed and implanted and functioned. But it's been very hard to even repeat that experiment. So even whole organs, let alone organisms, is a pretty big stretch. Mm -hmm. So finding the right goal, that's very tough, but I would like to see that happen. Mm -hmm. Max, I would use this opportunity to ask you a couple of more general questions about perhaps the relationship, potential or actual, between transhumanism and cryogenics. Mm -hmm. Well, to me... Cryonics, I should right. have said. To me, 
cryonics and transhumanism just go together very naturally. But cryonics is not attached to a transhumanist philosophy at all. You don't have to be a transhumanist. You just have to be someone who enjoys life and wants more life. Uh, to me, cryonics is really just an extension of critical care medicine. Mm-hmm. It's coming along at the point where today's doctors throw up their hands and say, you know what, there's nothing more I can do for you. you know, maybe I could revive you for a few minutes or a few seconds or even a few days, but you're just going to you know, conk out again. So we're going to let you go. Whereas 50 years ago, people who keeled over and stopped breathing, the heart stopped beating, uh, there's nothing at all they could do for them. They're just going to lean over and say, he's dead, and that's it. Today, we routinely bring those people back to life. But 50 years from now, the standards will change again, and people who today we call dead won't seem dead because they'll know how to reverse a lot more damage, have mm-hmm. a lot more advanced technology. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing is we're pointing out that what you call dead is not a sharp line. It changes yeah. over time, depending on your level of technology and expertise. Our job is to stop you getting worse, mm-hmm. just preserve you, stop things getting worse, and let the future have a shot at bringing you back. So all that requires, it doesn't require that you be a transhumanist and want to become you know, superhuman in your cognition and or emotions or have uh, an uploaded you know, body or something. It mm-hmm. just means that you don't want to die. You enjoy living. Why would you not do that? You know, if you'd have open heart surgery or experimental cancer treatment, why wouldn't you do cryonics? Mm-hmm. However, it's kind of natural for a transhumanist, if you're really committed ideologically to living longer and defying death and saying, you know, there's no good reason to accept nature's limit on our lifespan. Mm-hmm. Uh, since we don't have life extension right now, there's no proven method to you know, radically extending lifespan, cryonics is your last option. It's basically the only possible chance that you could be brought back. And we don't know if it's going to work for sure. You know, that's, our paperwork is full of disclaimers and things we don't know and things that might happen, but it's really the only option you have once your body gives out. And we do have some reasons to think it's actually workable. Wax, you've given us a fantastic tour of your facilities today, and you've taken time to talk to us about some of the details and the process behind it all. So let me finish our interview perhaps by asking you, in your opinion, what's the most important thing that you want people to take away from our visit today? I think the most important thing is really the point I kind of just made, that cryonics is not strange or weird or based on any kind of unusual science. It's really based on pretty sound science, electron microscope studies, the effects of low temperature on preserving tissues and so on. And it really just is critical care medicine taking to the next step, is realizing that our criteria of death are historically linked, that they change over time, and throwing up your hands and saying, I'm going to give up and just die, that's kind of a cowardly thing to do. If you enjoy life, why not have more of it? You can have more relationships, you can contribute more to the world, have more experiences, um, love more people. You know, If life is good, why accept this arbitrary thing where a heart valve gives out? Oh. I should just give up then, because a completely arbitrary physical problem has killed me. That seems rather silly. So we're saying we're not saying we have an answer to that. We're saying we have something that might allow you to have another chance. If you like life, would you like more of it? Uh, if you're willing to do other experimental treatments, why not give this a shot? It's really not as expensive as people think if you use life insurance, and you might have a chance of coming back and enjoying an amazing future. In your view, you know, perhaps a singularity, a world that's radically transformed and improved from a historical perspective, drastically so. It'd be nice to have a shot at actually living to that future. Yeah, to me, what I like about you guys is that you're certainly not offering guarantees, but to me, the very chance is absolutely worth going for because even if there's a small chance, the possibility that it opens are so incredible that I, I think it's only logical. It, it makes sense for all of us to take a serious consideration of this. Like with a radical new cancer treatment, maybe you'll get five extra years if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. Whereas if this works, you might get 5,000 extra years, maybe 5 million, we don't know. Because we wouldn't bring you back until we've cured the aging problem. 
So at that point, there are no more limits. So it seems like a good shot, a good bet. And that's a good point that I think we can stop our conversation and let our audience to consider all the implications and the possibilities that you were so kind enough to open in front of us today. So, Dr. Moore, I want to thank you for this today. Thank you very thank much. Thank you.